All right, so Ezekiel, it's on page 906 in my Bible. I don't know what it is in yours. Uh, the author, we think, is none other than Ezekiel. Um, he is a priest, which it says right in the first bit of Ezekiel, which kind of poses an inter interesting question right away. Anybody know where this is taking place? Babylon. In Babylon. So we have a priest who's displaced from his duties, right? Hi, Cindy. The priest is displaced because a priest would be on... Where would a priest be serving? In the temple. Where's the temple? Very far away from Babylon. <laughs> so he's kind of out of a job right now. It's like, well, no priest, no, no temple, no priest, right? So the date is, yes, after the initial wave of exile of Judah. Remember the it's split in two. We had the, the northern kingdom was exiled in the 700s by Assyria, so they're gone. So the only thing that was left was Israel, uh, Israel yeah, the southern part of Israel, Judah or Jerusalem. That took a little bit longer. Babylonians uh, usurped the Assyrian Empire in power and in strength, and then it was their turn. So they came in, took over um, Jerusalem and Judah, and exiled them. And there were several waves that happened. And so Ezekiel is probably one of the first waves that happened. And so, Mike, uh, can you repeat those dates? When uh, the Assyrians the, took it and then when uh, Babylonians? Most guys would say the northern kingdom was like 722 with the Assyrians. And there were several waves for the southern kingdom, but most guys will say 586 for like the last one. So where's Babylon? Where's modern day Babylon? Iraq? Iraq, yeah. It's about 50 miles south of Baghdad in Iraq. And so the, uh, the genre of this book, what we mean by genre is a type of book that we're dealing with in the Bible. It's prophecy. It's apocalyptic. It's a lot of symbolism. It's complicated. One author reports that Jewish rabbis wouldn't let their young men read it until they were 30 years old. So, Ryan, I'm afraid you're going to have to take off. So, at least until you're 30, right? Why do you think they would do that? Why would they say, no, and they can't read it until you're at least 30? It's a little complex, right? It's got a lot of imagery going on. You get distracted by all this stuff. And then in the redemptive context, right, again, why was Israel exiled? Sin. Sin. Yeah, it was judgment. It was God's judgment. Did God warn them about that? Ooh, a long, time. A long, long time. We just went through Jeremiah a couple weeks ago, right? God's been warning them. God's actually been warning them since the nation was established. And he told the rulers that this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to reject me and you're going to be judged. And why would you go that way? Right. So this is, uh, again, a continued kind of narrative in the God has judged his people for their rejection of him. And this is the end result. So of did, that. did um, Ezekiel live concurrently with Jeremiah? Did he know Jeremiah? I think so. There was some overlap for sure. Some overlap. Yep. yep. That's what most guys think. Yeah. Um, so... Enough kind of ground setting. Why don't I, uh, you know, give you people what you came here for, which is the video. Um, so, well, this is a seven-minute video for uh, part one. And I didn't hook anything up here, so we'll have to do that. 
Part one covering chapters one through uh, 33. Let me do that. Let me get rid of that. Sorry, guys, I didn't hook up the TV yet. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> now I'm really dating myself, Ken, because that was Saturday Night Live. Like, that was coffee talk. That was Mike Myers and coffee talk. Well, we're watching the precursor to Saturday Night Live laughing. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's bad. Yeah. You're going to say you second didn't watch the original. The second you were too young to watch the original. Yeah, too the original? young. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You were too young. No. All right, so here we go oh. with part one of yeah. Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest who had been living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on the city. And they spared the city, but they took a first wave of Israelite prisoners and hauled them off into exile, and Ezekiel was among them. So the book begins five years after all that, and Ezekiel is sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal near his Israelite refugee camp, and it's his 30th birthday, no less, the year that he would have been installed as a priest in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, Ezekiel has this vision. He sees a storm cloud approaching, and then inside the cloud are four strange creatures that have wings outstretched and touching each other. And these creatures each had four faces, and then he saw four wheels, one by each creature. And then he saw that the wings of the creatures were supporting this dazzling platform. And then on that platform is a throne. And then sitting on that throne is this human-like creature glowing and shrouded in fire. And then all of a sudden Ezekiel realizes what he's seeing. He calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's God riding his royal throne chariot. Now the word glory, in Hebrew it's kavod, it means heavy or significant. The biblical authors use this word to describe the physical appearance and manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. These images in the vision, they're very similar to what happened when God appeared on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And it's also very similar to the depictions of God's presence over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's actually the most shocking thing about Ezekiel's vision. What is God's glory doing in Babylon? It's supposed to be above the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple, in Jerusalem. And so the first section of the book opens to explore that question as Ezekiel begins to accuse Israel of rebellion. So God first speaks to Ezekiel from the throne chariot, and he commissions him as a prophet. Ezekiel is to accuse Israel of breaking their covenant agreement with God in a couple ways. Israel has given their allegiance to other gods and has been worshiping idols, and this has all led to rampant social injustice and violence. And so as a result, God appoints Ezekiel to warn the people. The first Babylonian attack that took Ezekiel into exile is going to be matched by another, and Jerusalem, its temple, all face imminent destruction. So Ezekiel uses words and more to get his message across. He also performs sign acts. These were a form of street theater. Ezekiel would go out in public and start behaving in these really bizarre ways that were like parables of his prophetic message. So he was supposed to build a tiny model of Jerusalem and then stage an attack on it. Or he was to shave off all of his hair and then chop it up with a sword. Or the most extreme, he was to play the role of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. And he would lay on his side for over a year, eating food cooked over poop as a sign of the nasty 
nasty food that people will have to eat during the siege of Jerusalem. And perhaps the most disheartening thing of all is the bad news God gave Ezekiel that no one was going to listen to him. Israel would reject him because of their rebellious and hard heart. And this recalls Moses' description of the people after the wilderness rebellions, when he predicted that exile would one day happen, and Ezekiel had the unfortunate privilege of seeing it all come to pass. And so, a dismayed Ezekiel, he begins to perform his task. And after about a year, he has another vision. This one is about the temple. He goes on this virtual tour of the temple, and he sees what's happening there in his absence, and it is not good. In the outer courtyard, in front of the temple, he sees this large idol statue. And then he sees the elders of Israel worshiping other gods, both outside and inside the temple. And then he sees the women of Israel. They're worshiping a Babylonian god named Tammuz. And the vision ends with God's glorious throne chariot moving up and away from the temple. It's leaving, going east, headed towards Babylon. And so in chapter 11, we come to see why and how God's glory appeared to Ezekiel there in Babylon. Israel's idolatry and their covenant violations, it's become so blatant and offensive that God has left his temple. They've driven him away, and he consigns it to destruction. But God hasn't abandoned his people. Rather, he goes into exile with them. And so at the end of this vision in chapter 11, God promises that he will return a remnant of Israel back to the land, and he'll transform them by removing their heart of stone and giving them a new soft heart of flesh so that they can love and truly follow their God after all. This is a small glimmer of hope, and it's quickly submerged under the reality of the imminent destruction. But chapter 11, it's a key transition, and it helps us understand how the rest of the book has been designed. So the next three sections are all announcements of God's judgment, first on Israel, then on the nations around Israel, and then on Jerusalem itself. But then after that, the hopeful conclusion of chapter 11 gets developed in the final three sections of the book. First, hope for Israel, then for the nations, and then for all creation. Chapters 12 through 24 focus on God's judgment coming to Israel. And this is a diverse collection of poems and essays. And here Ezekiel shows his fondness for parable and allegory. So he depicts Israel as a burnt, useless stick, or as a rebellious wife, or as a dangerous, raging lion that gets captured, or as two promiscuous sisters. These are all depictions of Israel's senseless rebellion and idolatry that results in their ruin. In this section, Ezekiel also acts like a lawyer. He begins arguing the case that, first of all, Jerusalem's destruction is truly deserved after centuries of covenant violation. And that even if the most righteous people in the world, like Noah or Daniel or Job, were alive and praying for God to spare Israel, God would not accept their prayers. It's far too late. And so God's goodness actually demands that he bring justice on this generation of Israel. The exile has become inevitable. They've reached the point of no return. Following this, Ezekiel focuses first on the nations immediately around Israel, and then on the two most powerful states in the region, Egypt and then Tyre. Israel has allied with these nations and adopted their gods and their idols, and so God accuses the kings of Tyre and Egypt for arrogantly viewing themselves as gods who get to define right and wrong on their own terms. And God holds these kings accountable for their pride, and he announces that he will use Babylon to bring them down. They will face God's justice along with everybody else. 
Following these really intense sections is a short story in chapter 33. Ezekiel's met by a refugee who's just arrived from Jerusalem, and he gives him the report that Babylon has attacked the city of Jerusalem, that the city has fallen, and the temple is destroyed. Ezekiel's grim warnings have become a reality. But remember, the end of chapter 11, that's not the end of the story. And so in the next video, we'll explore Ezekiel's profound vision of hope. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Ezekiel. Okay. Who knew you could cook over poop, right? <laughs> the book of the prophet Ezekiel. In the first video, we were introduced to... That's next week. Okay. All right, so let's read some Ezekiel, and let's uh, pull out some application from it and see how we do. We can turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Sure. Well, you don't want to be distracted by the things that will come up on YouTube. So Ezekiel uh, <coughs> chapter 1, starting in verse 1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Cheaper Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of exile of the king Jehoiachin, and the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Sheber Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So we see what uh, was described in the video there, that uh, Ezekiel himself now is in Babylon, and he's by the... Cheber Canal, and he's kind of trying to absorb everything that's been happening, right? This is not something that is any longer in uh, abstract. This is something that's happened to him. So he understands the exile now because he has been exiled. He is in Babylon. Do we know where the Cheber Canal is? I looked for it. Um, there's nothing really, there's theories of it. It's, I don't believe it's a modern day place. Say canal, it's usually hand, something hand up, man-made. Yeah. yeah, maybe. As opposed to, you know, waterways. Yeah. Enough to find the canal in Vernon, which is only a couple, of, you know, less than 200 years old. <laughs> yeah. That one's 2,000 years yeah. old, yeah. you know, or more, uh, 3,000 years old. Yeah, I, I don't think they know the exact location other than you know, near Babylon. I've never heard of it before, but I think it's mentioned a couple times in Ezekiel. Yes. So it sounds like they're really important. Place, yeah, place it's certain. Well, yeah, certainly a lot of important things happen there. Yeah, and so what's the first thing he sees as he sits down? And the hand of the Lord was upon him. What's the vision consist of? A great cloud with brightness around it. A great cloud with brightness around it. Yep, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it. Fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire, gleaming metal, all of that. And then he goes on and he sees this image in the midst of it. From the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. They had a human likeness, four faces, four wings. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the soles of calf's foot. They sparkled like burnished bronze under the wings. They had human hands and the four, that, uh, they had their faces and the wings. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. And the likeness of their faces had a human face. One had a lion, one had an ox, uh, so on, right? And they had uh, the likeness, going down maybe to verse 
15. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their construction, the appearance was like the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness. Their appearance and construction was, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. So, I mean, we keep reading, but this is pretty freaky stuff, right? <laughs> what are we seeing here? We're seeing this... I think the uh, the video did a, a pretty good job of trying to maybe put that together, right? The elevated platform with the wheels inside the wheels and then the creature with the wings and four faces and, and all of that. What is all that? Well, Ezekiel tells us in the last verse of chapter 1, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so the appearance of the brightness all around such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So all of that, the faces, the wings, the wheels, the platform, all of that represents the glory of the Lord. And we don't have time to dig into all of the why the faces and why the wheels and all that, right? Um, but that's the vision in a nutshell, is it is a representation of God's glory. And um, one of the things I appreciated about the video is, what's weird about God's glory being in Babylon? Right? It shouldn't be in Babylon. <laughs> it should be back in Jerusalem where the temple is. But God is present with them in the midst of their suffering in that way. What was Ezekiel's reaction to being in the presence of the glory of the Lord? He fell face down, right? Terrified. When I saw it, I fell on my face, right? Which we always see as the biblical example. Even when people see angels, which is a fraction of the glory of the Lord, they fall face down in terror on that. And then the voice says in chapter 2, He called to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said, Son of man... I will send you to the people of Israel, to the nations of rebel who, rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send, them, I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for once again they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And I looked, and behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was on it. And he spoke it before me, and it had writing on the front and the back, and there were written on the words of lamentation and mourning and woe. What do we see in chapter 2? Who's speaking? God. God. Yeah, God's speaking. He's speaking to... Ezekiel, what is he calling him? Son of man. Son of man. See, that's repeated some places. Yeah, where else is that repeated? In the Gospels. In the Gospels. It's one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself. 
Where else is that repeated? In the Old Testament. Next book over. In Daniel quite a bit, right? Mm -hmm. Daniel 7, Daniel 9, talking about the Messiah. In this context, obviously it's God speaking and he's talking to Ezekiel. So he's just talking about him as a representation of men, as a representation of the nation of Israel. Right? Is, uh, Ezekiel gets a mission. What's his mission? <clears throat> go and tell. Does he think it's going to go well? <laughs> Probably not, right? He says, whether they listen to you or not, what is Ezekiel's job? Doesn't matter. Just tell them. Keep telling him the message that I give to you. Is it Ezekiel's responsibility to make them listen? No. No. It's just Ezekiel's responsibility to tell them the truth. Right? And what is the message that God gives them? Or more appropriately, where is this message? What do we see it? What's the medium of communication that he uses? A scroll. It's a scroll. Yeah. So it's the word of God. Right? It's the written word of God, like we have today. Right? He does tell him to open his mouth and eat it, which notwithstanding is pretty weird. But we're dealing with metaphors and symbolism here. Right? And so what do you think it means by eating the word of God? Right? If I say, eat Ken, you've got to go home and it. eat the word of God. What? Be fed by it. Yeah, be fed by it. Like Literally, like you know, take it into your heart and your soul. Understand this message. Absorb this message. Right? It doesn't, yeah, it usually doesn't taste so good. Yep. Then Not chap- words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. No. I can't imagine that would taste very good. <laughs> Definitely not. Rather bitter. Yeah, rather bitter. So chapter 3, God goes on and tells him to eat whatever you find here. Eat and go. Go and eat. And then eat and go. I ate it and it was in my mouth, but he said it was sweet as honey. Mm-hmm. Right? You would think lamentation would be a little better. <laughs> And he gives, uh, continues to give Ezekiel his mission. And in verse 4 of chapter 3, he says it explicitly, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Is this Ezekiel's message that he's no. bringing him? No, it's God's message. It's God's word that he is bringing them. So fast forward in chapter 3, we see the responsibilities mm-hmm. of the watchmen. Uh, just read a little bit there. The end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them the warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you'll surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Why? What is he saying there? He says, all right, Ezekiel, you're the watchman, and here's the mission. Go warn those people that if they don't stop what they're doing, they're going to die. And Ezekiel doesn't do it. And he says, they'll die, and guess what? So will you. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're going to die, and also I'm going to require the blood at your hand. Why would God require the blood at Ezekiel's hand? What's that? Payment for sin. Blood is the payment for sin. But what did Ezekiel, what was he supposed well, he to do? He didn't tell us Yeah, he didn't. He didn't do what God told him to do. So guess what? You know, you're responsible. The whole, the whole idea behind the, of a watchman is that the watchman watches for danger yep. and alerts somebody if they see danger. Yep. If the watchman doesn't alert somebody for, and, and there's danger coming, yeah. 
then every, exactly. everybody dies. Imagine I mean, it being your shift yeah. on top of the ramparts in the castle, and right. you see a an enemy soldier would be killed for that. Yeah, exactly. Right. You see an enemy army approaching. You yeah. know, it's your duty, and you're on duty, and you're like, yeah, I'll just scroll Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm too busy on Facebook. You're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Right? You're supposed to warn, but they didn't warn. What does that tell us about us today? Well, even in the New Testament, the role of a minister or a pastor is very, very weighty. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. responsible for, for a lot of souls also. Yeah. It's a very, very weighty, weighty, big responsibility. Yeah. If it's done the right way. This is a passage that we bring up often to elders and, and pastors and things that it's our responsibility to speak the words of God if they listen or they don't listen because guess what? If I don't do my job, it's going to be on my head. Mm -hmm. If I don't say the hard truths, if I don't say what God tells me to say in his word, if I just chicken out, right? That's on me. Hebrews 13 says I'm going to give an account. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is talking about as well. So we, have, we do have a lot of responsibility, but uh, we also see uh, the Holy Spirit empowering people for ministry even then. Um, verse 23, so I arose and went out into the valley. Behold, the glory of the Lord stood there like the glory that I'd seen by the canal. I fell on my face, but the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and spoke with me and said, go shut yourself within your house, right? So, but... The Spirit comes, and the Spirit is what empowers him. He's going to take a little side detour, but the Spirit is what empowers us for that ministry. A couple things to pull out of just these chapters, this kind of part one, um, and I pulled these from somebody else, but the first one is that God is not like us. I mean, the, the very nature of this vision, I think, is complex, and sometimes I think it's so complex because it, we're not supposed to figure these things out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the guys on YouTube that say, well, the wheels clearly represent China, and the, <laughs> the, the faces represent the spy balloon, that it's whatever. It's, what about we're, the we're, guy on the Discovery Channel that says it's a rocket ship? Yeah. <laughs> That we have to tap out at some point. We're yeah. dealing with the Almighty God here. We're not going to understand Him completely. And really, if you look closely at the vision, even the vision itself doesn't intend to represent God in accurate, exquisite detail. They use so many words of comparison. If you look, if you skim chapter 1, you'll see how many times? The likeness of, or it was like, or likeness of or the appearance of, or the appearance was like, or likeness, all of that time and time and time again, right? Heavy, heavy symbolism, right? And so if it's symbolism, we're going to sp spin our wheels, huh, metaphorically. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> if you're just like trying to figure out, oh, what do the wheels represent? Why are they for? I mean, yeah, you can glean some stuff from that, but don't get, don't get too crazy involved in that, right? Because it is a vision with a lot of symbolism, right? So remember, God is not like us, but God is, we can pick up from the, the vision for sure, God is, what if there's, there's all these wheels with all these eyes on it? What could that be telling us? Yeah, and they're all turning, right, everywhere, like, is there anything God doesn't see? No, God's all-knowing and he's all-seeing, right? I mean, we can pick that up pretty easily from the vision, and we know that that's part of God's characteristics right he's all seeing he's all knowing he's omniscient he's omnipresent he's there with them he's not limited by circumstances right 
Um, so he's all-seeing, he's all-knowing. The eyes look in every direction. Uh, God is still with us, even in exile. He's not limited by circumstances. And we think about how depressed Ezekiel must be after he's probably seen you know, his family murdered or whatever else. And now he's over there in, in a, foreign language, a foreign country, so many miles away from his home. Who's the one that comes to Ezekiel in the first place? God. Yeah. Do we see Ezekiel like starting this whole prayer going, God, where are you? What are you doing? Do you see what's happening? No, God's already there. God takes the initiative to be with his people. Right? How else does God take the initiative? Sunday school answer alert. <laughs> and Jesus, of course, Jesus comes to this sin-stained world to save us from our exile and our enslavement to sin. Though it's consistent with God's nature, God is an initiator. God protects his people, but he certainly judges his people as well. What about the fact that God's talking at all? God communicates. God gives his word. We have his word. And he communicated automatically there in Genesis because they walked and talked. Yep. So that, that was that, that personal one-to-one Absolutely. communication uh, with uh, Adam and Eve. Yeah. So he gives them this freaky vision. That's communication. He gives them the voice in chapter 2. He gives them the scroll. So God's continuing to communicate. He's continuing to reveal himself as who he really is. Um, After chapter 3, kind of the next chunk is maybe 4 through 7, where he goes on to these uh, dramatic uh, street theater, (laughs) as the video called it, sign acts. He doesn't just speak it. He acts it out, right? He makes a mock Jerusalem with like little walls and stuff and plays with it in the middle of the street. I love the question marks above the people's head in the video. Like, you know, this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. He was told to lay on his side for 390 days and then on his right side for another 40 days. He was eating food, cooked over uh, human poop. God started out telling him to cook it over cow poop and that was unclean. And so Ezekiel knew what he was doing. So he's like, God, I can't do that. It's unclean. Please let me use human poop. And so it's like, okay, sure, go ahead, use human poop. (laughs) He shaves off his hair and his beard, and he chops it up with a sword, right? So we have these sign acts happening in chapter 4, chapter 5, and onward. God specifically promises judgment once again. Uh, If we look maybe 5, chapter 7, or sorry, chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore says the Lord your God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you, and you've not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, you've not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. He's saying, guess what? Not only did you not follow my law, he's like, you're worse than all the other nations around you, and they're all pagans. You're worse than they are. He says, therefore, behold, I, even I, am against you. And I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never done, the like of which I will never do again. He goes on to say, I will spend my wrath. I will vent my fury on you. Um, I will send on you the deadly arrows of famine and destruction. I will destroy you. And then he says at the end of chapter 5, I am the Lord. I have spoken. 
So he is promising the gloves are off now. He's promising the judgment is imminent. But yet we see in chapter 6 a chapter different side. Has an interesting verse, or chapter 5 has an interesting verse in it. As a result, fathers will eat their sons within Jerusalem, and sons will eat their fathers. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it's going to be bad. It's going to be the siege. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, what happens when you run out of food. Yeah. It's, it's something that we can't even wrap our minds around. But we might think that we hear God so angry in chapter 5 that God is kind of like, like, you deserve this and here it comes and I'm going to enjoy inflicting this on you. That is not the case. Uh, we see chapter 6. Uh, look at uh, verse 9 of chapter 6. Then those who will escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive and how I have been broken over it. And look at the strong wording he uses. He's been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. What do we see there? What side of see love? Yeah. Yeah. He's broken. He's broken. He says, I'm, think of that, God, the God, says, I am broken about this. I am broken about your spiritual adultery. He uses strong language, right? Yeah. Whoring after their other idols, right? I mean, the, it, he promises that judgment, but he's, he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, right? He doesn't delight in doing his vengeance on his own people. It's something that had to happen to redeem his glory and to protect his holiness. But he's broken over that. And we see that aspect of God. How does that help us in our daily lives? How does that encourage us? God loves us even when we sin. Yeah. God loves us even when we sin. And God's right. full of compassion. God's yep. full of compassion. Right? We see the balance. Like these two chapters are a really good way to look at the balance of really important attributes of God. Right? Because <clears throat> we see his justice. Yeah. And a lot of guys are like, justice, wrath, 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 wrath. And then... You know, and then the other camp is like, well, he's all compassion and love and everything mm -hmm. else. Well, he's both. Yeah. He is justice. He has to punish the guilty. But he's also compassionate and mercy and knows that and feels that. Like a good father. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if there's, what is it, 10? And they know that I am the Lord. I did not threaten to bring this disaster on them without a reason. Yeah. This is not, that's a really good point, Ken. It's not arbitrary. Right. It's not like God wakes up on a Tuesday and was like, I think I'll just zap Cindy today just yeah. for the heck of it. Yeah. I don't have anything on my calendar. In fact, right? he warned them for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Because you're a good father, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> and, and exactly. We'd be terrible parents yeah. if we did that, right? Yeah. Just decide to go, you yeah. know, beat our kids or go do whatever to our kids just because we're in a bad mood. Like, no, no, this is not God in a bad mood. This is God defending his holiness and his justice mm -hmm. and he's not all that happy about it but he has to do it so that's what it, you're right that's what a good father does right we also see that he understands what it means to be betrayed he understands what it means to be broken like he uses very strong language about that yeah. so he gets it yeah. he gets it and so when we're in those situations we have the understanding that god gets it god gets it in a degree that frankly we probably won't and some of those situations could be pretty bad. What is the goal of all this judgment? 
if one was to scan through chapters 5, 6, and 7, there would be one phrase that comes up time and time and time again. We will know that he is the Lord. Exactly. It comes up a lot in 5, 6, and 7. Mm -hmm. He says, you will then know that I am the Lord. What does he mean by that? What's the point of all this? So that you'll know that I'm God? He is who he says he is. Yeah. Absolutely. Sometimes we're not going to get anything into our thick skulls unless God humbles us into the dust. A lot of times. I'm sure if we went around this room and talked about testimonies, we were like, yeah, I was a stubborn donkey for a long time, right? Until God buried my face in the dust, and then he had my attention. And then I know that he is the Lord, right? Same thing with Israel. We see it time and time again. Is that ultimately then for our good? Yeah. Yes. If we end up knowing the one true God, yeah, get out of the dust, knowing the one true God, and move on. Right? Mm -hmm. The but, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Amen. Yeah, Proverbs. Yeah. So. He disciplines those whom he loves. Yep. But he said it wasn't going to be easy. It's not going to be easy, but it's worth it, right? And it's for our good. Ultimately, it's for our good. What other points of application can we have maybe for just uh, four through seven there, those chapters that we kind of breezed over? Any other things that we can apply to our lives? God is a God of his word. God's a God of his word. He does not change. No. He will not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Anybody ever play that game with their parents? You know, when you were little, you asked them to do something, and they said no, but you kind of felt like it was a soft no? And you can kind of keep at it, and maybe they would relent and say yes after a while. You know? Yeah. Or you go and ask mom, because dad said no. <laughs> and then you catch them because they didn't talk to each other. <laughs> and then you watch as an argument starts. Mom, are you listening to this? Sorry. Um, God is not changing. God can't be manipulated. When God says it will happen, it will happen. God's serious about sin. And he's very serious about idolatry, and he's extremely serious about serious, uh, sin and idolatry in his people that are the visible representation of him. I was thinking the other point of application we just talked about. Uh, God sometimes allows really tough things to happen to us. Why? So that we will know that he is the Lord of us. You're not going to learn those things when it's all sunshine, rainbows, and puppy dogs. Right? But when he has our attention, then we will know that he is the Lord. Nobody wants to do that, and myself included, because it's painful. But those lessons are deep and good. All right, let's look at uh, chapter 8. This is the flashback to the temple. What's going on, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem? And it ain't good. God sees what the elders are doing. Chapter 8, verse 12, he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. He has forsaken the land. And he said to me, You will see greater abominations that they commit. So God's looking back at Israel. He's looking back at the priests, the elders, the scribes, the leaders of Israel that are still there in and around the temple. And he says, Look at them, they're in the dark, each in his own room of pictures. 
What do you think that's talking about? Mine has a different translation. Okay. It says, each at the shrine of his idol. There you go. Yeah. yeah. It says that's pretty clear. Yeah. It, it was shocking in the video. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you saw that, but yeah. the statues of the yeah. idols were set up around the temple. Yeah. It's like, it's a wonder that God let them yeah. Yeah. breathe yeah. doing that. They set yeah. up idols like in the temple courts. And, and they're in the dark, yeah, with the, their, um, you know, their picture, their room full of pictures, you know, and he, they say that the Lord doesn't see us. It's like, dude, do you remember the thing with the eyes? Yeah. No, he yeah. sees you. <laughs> he totally sees you. They think that they're getting away with it, but they're not, right? So that's what's going on back in the temple. They are still worshiping their idols, and they're worshiping them more blatantly than they ever have before. But then God goes, he's going to go after them, and he's going to start with the leaders. Uh, chapter 9, verse 6, he says, Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom who has the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they begin with the elders that were before the house. Mm -hmm. So we see those that are faithful to God. God's not, his problem is not with people that are faithful with him. His problem are the, are the people that have rejected him blatantly, right? And where does he start? And begin where? In front of the temple. Begin in my sanctuary. Yeah, right. Yeah, and again, if you're an elder or a pastor, this is, that's a sobering passage. Mm -hmm. He's going to start with us for our failures. Right? Then we have the dramatic scene in chapter 10 and 11 of God's glory leaving the temple. Uh, in the video, it had the that whole big freaky thing on the cart with the wheels and everything rolling out of the temple to the east, right? where God's glory left in the eastern direction. What's the meaning of, of, of God's glory leaving the temple? He's removed his favor from the people. Yeah, he's removed his favor from the people. That is where God's physical presence was at that time on earth, was at the temple, right? And... Now he's he's this is you could this is it like it has happened, God's presence Himself has left the temple. That's the vision of it. That God is no longer with His people, um, and that's from the east. If you go to Jerusalem, and you look at the the walls around the Temple Mount, there's one uh, set of doors, one set of gates on the eastern side that is welded shut. All the other gates are usually open, but there's one set of doors on the eastern side that are welded shut, right? You can see it from the Mount of Olives. And that's the doors that they're talking about here. Because after the glory of the Lord left the temple, they welded it shut, and they figured nobody's going to open that door until the Messiah comes. Mm -hmm. So we're going to leave that door closed until the Messiah comes, and then he will open that door and then usher into us into the kingdom and the presence of God and all that stuff. They missed the connection that the Messiah is actually Jesus. But still, it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Remember that, Mel? It's just like, the they're like, why are those doors closed? I'm like, well, that's where the glory of the Lord went out, and they shut it up tight. And when the Messiah comes, he has the key, and he'll open it. It's like, mm, so close, but no. Well, that were gone, right? I assume when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. What's that? Those doors would be gone now. It they, they still stand? They still stand. They still stand. Yeah. Still yeah. Stand. I mean, the rubble's still there. But okay. Yeah. yeah. It They're doesn't look anything like it 
Right, but those but, doors are actually still standing. Yeah, whether or not they reconstructed them, or I'm sure they did. Okay. That's an outer wall of Jerusalem, or that's part of the temple? The outer, outer wall. Oh, the oh, outer okay. wall. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, there's several different walls and gates and all of that. Yeah. And, and I'm sure it's gone through a fair amount of reconstruction. You know, it's been however many empires have conquered Israel again. You know, the Ottomans right. and everybody else come in and do their things. And yep. So think about how that is to see a vision of the glory of the Lord. If you're a, a, a faithful Jewish person, to see a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving your holy temple that you have grown up in worshiping and sacrificing and told all about and it's in the middle of your city. It's the most glorious thing you've ever seen, right? Yeah, not only that, he's going to be a priest, was going to be a priest working there, yeah. you know, doing sacrifices yeah. for the Lord and he's like, you know, okay. doing the Lord's this work. This doesn't look good for job security. Yeah, it doesn't look good. <laughs> yep. It, it's got to make you wonder, like, are we done? Yeah. Like, is there any coming back from this? And they actually wonder that out loud uh, in chapter 11. Verse 13, um, it came to pass while I was prophesying uh, that Pelatia, or however you say that, the son of Benaniah died. And then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end to the remnant of Israel? Which he's basically saying, is this it? Are we done? Like, are you just going to kill us all? Are we ever going to come back from this? Is there ever going to be a faithful remnant that's going to be so... This is, uh, this is Ezekiel wondering this out loud, and I think you would have to when you see the level of that destruction. But then comes in some hope. Look at 11, um, starting in verse 16. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off from among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, Yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they've gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove it from all its desolate, thing, detestable things and its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their heads, declares the Lord. What does that tell us? There's hope. There is hope. There's hope. said that way back in Exodus too, right? Yeah. I will be... They will be my people and I will be their God. Yes. Yeah, that's a familiar kind of refrain throughout the Old yeah. Testament. Yep. Yeah, there's hope. So he answered Ezekiel's question. Are we done? Is this it? It's like, no, I'm not going to make a full end to you. There is hope. As bad as this seems, there is hope. And more than hope, it's actually, it says, I will gather you from the people's God as a plan. Yeah, it's a promise. Yeah, it's a promise. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So there is still hope. Um, and so some points of application um, yeah of course where is the ultimate hope does this sound familiar I'll give them a new heart and a new spirit yes. and I'll put my heart within them mm -hmm. where else do we see that we see it later on in Ezekiel yeah. chapter 36 we'll see it again 
It sounds also a lot like our friend Jeremiah. Yep. He said the same thing. So this is coming up multiple times in Scripture in, in the big dogs, in mm -hmm. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. How is that prophecy ultimately fulfilled? Jesus. In Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Sunday school. <laughs> right? Ultimately fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus is going to do the one who's going to atone for those sins. Right. Jesus is the one who's going to do the work on the cross. He's going to be gloriously raised from the dead. He's going to ascend back to heaven. And then what do we get? We get the spirit that then is going to give us that new heart that's going to cause us to walk in these statutes. So Christianity, from start to finish, is never about just behaving. Right? It's never just about checking the boxes. It's about the fact that we're broken, God is faithful, and he's going to give us the means, even in the spirit, and brought by the Messiah, Jesus. So it's one thing to the do Old what Testament he's doing. shows us is checking the boxes doesn't, isn't, you know, yeah. that's not what God's looking for. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there are people still at the temple right now thinking they're, you know, I'm sure they had little sheets in Hebrew, and they were probably physically checking boxes. Yes, I offered this sacrifice, I mm -hmm. did this, I cleaned this temple, I did, yeah. you know, and meanwhile... They're worshiping idols in the courtyard. Well, when Jesus walked into the temple, they were worshiping idols in the form of money. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, then, so he always turned tables. Yeah. And he yeah started turning over tables right. Yeah. With a whip. Yeah. So yeah, so there is hope, and that hope ultimately is in the end of the story, which is Jesus Christ fulfilling that and giving us that spirit. But way back in Ezekiel, he's still saying that. Right. So all the Bible tells one story. Right. We talked about God starting the judgment at the sanctuary, and we could expand that, you know, the church. I mean, he's not going after the faithful ones. He's going after the ones that were unfaithful. And so even as people, it, it is sure elders and pastors, but it's also us. Like, we claim the name of Jesus. We better act like it. We talked about that on Sunday. We better not be carrying his name in vain. So, and he's going to start the judgment with us, right, if we're not faithful. Um, God's glory departed from Israel. What also does that tell us about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? If God's glory is gone, does it ever come back? Trick question. <laughs> does God's glory ever come back to the temple? <laughs> Do they ever rebuild the temple? Yes. The temple in the new covenant passes away. Yep. Uh, the temple passes away, and, yeah. and it's the heart and the mind. Yeah. It, it, there's guys well, who will fight about this online, but it never returns. There's no scriptural evidence that the, the glory of God ever fully returns to the temple, the physical right. temple, because we'll have Nehemiah and Ezra. They'll go back and build it. They'll build their sad little you know, interpretation of the temple. But then, of course, in Jesus' time, like Jim said, right, we're going to have King Herod. who's going to be like, you want to build a temple? I'll show you how to build a temple. And so then he builds this magnificent temple. But it's still missing the glory of the Lord. All of those are missing the glory of the Lord, right? So it is showing us, yes, the old, as Frank said, the old covenant was never meant, it, it was never meant to completely house the glory of the Lord. There's got to be something that takes its place. But Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll build it again in three days. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah, I mean, in context, he meant his body, right. but that he has to do that so that the new temple can come. Yeah. Right? Now, the new temple isn't a physical temple. The new temple is us, which 1 Corinthians tells us we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
because as believers, the temple, the Holy Spirit resides in each one of us. We don't have to go to Jerusalem and sacrifice oxen and sheep and all of that stuff. We don't have to go through a high priest. We don't have to do all that because we have Jesus. So that's what all this is pointing to. So as tragic as it was for the glory to leave the temple, it points to the greater glory in the New Testament that will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy of the Holy Spirit again. And we think about Jesus leaving God's glory in heaven to come down to earth. I'll give us one passage in John. And then we probably should land the plane. Um, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the foundational passage in John chapter 1, dealing with, of course, the Logos, the Word, Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and watch this, and we've seen His glory. Mm -hmm. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at how the New Testament makes the connection to the fact that the glory of God left the temple, the Old Testament, never to be seen again until what? Jesus. Until Jesus comes. And then John says, there's God's glory. It's back. It's back in the person of Jesus Christ. We've, we've seen God's glory. He repeats it, his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you want to know where God's glory went? It went to heaven. It's with Jesus and Jesus brings God's presence to earth. Jesus is God in the flesh to do that for us. So it's really cool how the New Testament kind of connects those dots, like, hey, where'd the glory go? And then John says, it's back. <laughs> it's Jesus. So yeah, didn't get as far as I wanted to. But any questions from maybe the first kind of flyover that we did in the first 11 chapters? Questions, comments, disparaging remarks? In, in chapter 9, uh, verse 6, it talks about um, uh, anyone who has the mark won't be destroyed. What, what does he mean by that? Yeah, I need to look into that a little more. Um, but at first glance, I would imagine that's going to be the mark that God knows who are faithful to him. Right. So this is really describing more a change of heart. Yes. Yeah, something that only God would know, right? Um, I mean, God would know, but it's, at this right. point, it's probably pretty obvious. Either you're bowing down to Molech and Chemosh, yeah. or you're not. Right? <laughs> you know, you're. you're it's pretty obvious. Are you, are you the faithful remnant, or are you not? Yeah. Yeah, because you know who is he talking to there? At this point, he's talking to his angels not to um, Ezekiel. Yep. I mean, Ezekiel's listening in on the conversation, essentially. Yeah, he's calling so, in the executioners. Right, right. So the executioners will be able to tell. Yep. You know, they know yeah. who belongs to God and who doesn't. You think of it, too, like the the Passover, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Israel had the, had the mark on their doorpost, right? We'll have that revelation. They talk about that. Yep. Yep. In verse 4, it says, put a mark... On the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah. Yep. So it's interesting they come at it from the negative perspective, right? It's not just the positive perspective of following, being faithful to God, 
but those who are lamenting over the people who are not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ones that are maybe calling out for them to repent and change. Hopefully. Anybody else? Last thoughts? We'll pick it back up in chapter 12 with Ezekiel the lawyer. All right. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that, uh, Lord, we can, we can read your word from so many thousands of years ago. Um, we have technology which helps us get an idea of the bigger picture and put some of these pieces together. Thank you for men who have gone before us and studied that and helped map that out for us. But Lord, this is a sobering picture um, of the, really the inevitability of your wrath, um, the depths, of course, of depravity that, that, that people who claim to walk with you at one time could even fall into. Um, we haven't even talked about the depths of the suffering of your people and the siege and all of that in Jerusalem, Lord, the reality of, of the consequences of sin. Father, would you give us the right balance to help understand you more in the unbelievable complexity and beauty of the vision of your glory and the stunning display of your wrath and how you even call executioners to begin the work, of course, in, in the form of Babylon, Lord, but using the evil that is in their heart to execute your judgment on your people. But we see your long-suffering and your steadfastness, how literally hundreds of years you warned Israel that this was going to eventually happen. And you begged them through prophet after prophet to repent and to change and to turn from their sin and their idolatry. And Lord, how when they didn't, it says that you were broken over that. Lord, help us to understand all of that better Help us to walk in an awareness of that. Help that to encourage us as knowing who you are, the God who is just, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but also the God who is compassionate, who by no means, as, as we'll see later, uh, Lord, wants to see the guilty punished. It's, it's not a desire of your heart to inflict malicious punishments on us, and so help us to understand that. But Lord, most of all, help us to honor you well. Help us to flee from idolatry and hypocrisy in all its forms. Help us to carry the name of the Lord our God in a, in a manner that is worthy. And would you be glorified through us, and we pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.